0: Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes Revealing Chats with Canada's Retro Music Makers. Enjoy. Today I'm very honoured to have as my special guest recording artist and Canadian icon Kathy Young. Her second album, Travel Stained, was released in 1973 and Young won the Juno Award for Best Artist in 1974. So we'll be talking about music and travels and the business of music and we'll get some other insights as well about her music career. So thanks for joining me today, Kathy. How are you?
1: I am not too bad for an old broad still breathing, thank
0: God. Yes, you're an eternal optimist, I, I read on your <laughs> uh, page, which is a very nice way to be.
1: Self-described, and uh, yeah. I don't know how to be any other way. Three years old, I sung Jesus yeah. Love Me on the streetcar, and the whole <laughs> place stopped, and it was the first time I ever heard applause. And wow. the guy gave me, a, an older man gave me a butterscotch candy, and and. Uh, I don't know. I've been a sucker for applause and butterscotch ever (laughs) since.
0: (laughs) Well, because I often ask people, like, you know, how did you get your start? Everybody, well, my parents got me piano lessons, all that stuff. But other people are just naturals. Like you just open your mouth and you realize this is what I was meant to do and this is what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, I believe that. Um, I've always had music in my heart and my soul. Um, My father actually told me I was crazy because I could hear music in my head. And I've heard of other few people who had that problem and their parents sent them to therapists because they thought it was Mm. a horrible thing, you know, really. (laughs) But I I did. I've always heard music in my head. It's always running in my head. Hmm. Maybe it was the mercury I was playing with when I was a kid. I used (laughs) to break the thermometers and roll it around in my hand and play with it. So (laughs) I think I probably have a little bit of the Mad Hatter in me. I didn't have any formal training until ooh, many, many years, but I had a natural aptitude to it, so I always yeah. played. I could play. Uh, I picked out the, the the notes to Claire de Lune on a piano at my father's friend's house, so I knew I had some sort of thing. Uh, and I never picked up the guitar till I was 15, but when I was okay. very young, I, I, I knew I, I just loved music. I just loved it. The watershed moment for me, Dan, came when our whole family broke up when I was 12. We ended up in a one-bedroom apartment with Mm -hmm. my father and my sister. My sister and I shared the bedroom, and my father slept on the couch. And he wouldn't let his daughters go. We could have ended up in the foster system. He wouldn't let us go.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: uh, so what changed for me was one I didn't know where we were going, what was happening. I was very lost. And then I was saved. The Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. I can never lie about my age. I turned 13. And that night was my birthday. The Beatles were my present. And when I heard them play, I knew. I knew. My soul locked into the music, and I, I said, "This is what I want to do." The the mural that's um, on the wall a uh, Young and Carlton, the two hundred and twenty foot high. Second yeah, I wanted to ask biggest, you about that biggest in <laughs> yeah. the world, painted <laughs> by the one and only Adrian Sate Hales. He did yeah. both sides of it. It's in a community building on the both sides of a, of a 22 story building at young and Carlton on the yes. East side. And first he did about five oh well, about maybe almost 10 years ago now. And it was, uh, Ronnie Hawkins. May he rest in peace? Yeah. My dear Ronnie. Um, yeah. and he was right on the top. He called him the mayor of young street. And yes. under there were, uh, Glenn Gould and, uh, Gordon Lightfoot and, uh, Diane Brooks and Jackie Shane, uh, beautiful, mm. you know. Yeah. And now they've put it on the other side. And I didn't even know they were doing it. I got a call and said, uh, "We've painted your, we're painting your picture on the thing with Young Street le- Legends, and and uh, see if you can find yourself on it." <laughs> I went and I they gave me the. Uh, I went okay. Uh, it's twenty six feet tall and it's the lower left hand quadrant. Yeah. And, and he's yep. worked my guitar, the psychedelic part. Our side of the building starts <laughs> with the, the rock pile, the band, uh, Rush, J. Douglas, David Clayton Thomas, Dizzy Gillespie, Max Webster, Carol Pope, the, uh, the Checkmates, the, uh, the Mandela. Wow.
0: I guess you started as a busker and you ended up playing at the
1: yeah the clubs down there. I was busking, but I had my guitar case closed. I was very, very, very upset if anybody threw money at me. <laughs> I was playing for the love of my art, starving, yeah. but playing for the love. I would sell magazines, harbinger magazines at twenty five cents. You got oh. to keep ten cents and and, wow. and and sell them to the cars as they went by and and then went go back and that was my audience. The street was just my audience to me. And it's it's just sharing love, you know. Yorkville to me, um, I left at 16. I walked away from school. One of the they they I they did an IQ test, and said I had one of the highest IQs they'd ever mm. had there. I chose it. To, I had no direction. My best friend went there to do homemaking. That's all a girl could do back then. I mm. wanted to take auto mechanics. They wouldn't let me. Oh, Oh no, we we're, weren't allowed. And they used to send me home because my, I wore a school uniform, uh, but it was public school, and it was six inches above my knee, and the hmm. rule was four inches so, or three inches. So they'd send me home, and I'd wow. stay there, or I'd go to Yorkville. Hmm. So I was away 39 days, and it was only January, so they tried to expel me, but I had never failed anything. Hmm. So they told me, you know, we're gonna have you start grade ten over again. I said, why? Well, because you've been away so many times. I said, you you can't you can't expel me. He said, why not? I said, because I quit and I left. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then then you went back to music, obviously. You just thought, okay, I got better things to do than than this.
1: Yeah, I continued. I mean, music was starting to flower within me at that point. And I, yeah. so I just, I went and moved uh, to Yorkville.
0: How did you get the gigs in the rock pile and stuff? Did they hear you? Like, how did you get from outside to inside, so now, to speak?
1: I, uh, an agent walked by who was booking the Minor Bird, at the time, okay. and yep. heard me and said, hey, kid, no cigar, but you can picture it. Yep. You want a job? <laughs> I said, yeah, sure I do. So he booked me into the minor bird for and, 10 days, and then somebody mm. said, let's go to Mariposa. And I said, oh, okay. So I went to Mariposa and had a good time there. And Then I came back, and I ended up working there for six months. I thought 10 days was a good gig, but mm. I they had me back. And I was there for six months. And I was the house musician. And the house magician was Doug Henning. You heard of oh, him? Oh, nice. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> of yeah. course. And, yeah. and the house crazy guy was uh, King Ricardo, the limbo dancer, who also mm-hmm. eat glass and light bulbs. And Oh, wow. It was a circus. And that's what was yeah. my song from my first album called The Circus. Yes. John Brower was running the Rock Pile. I went to the Rock Pile to watch a show, and I never would move anywhere without my guitar in my hand. I had my brush in there. It was like my purse, you know.
0: Okay, and cool. And so
1: here I had my guitar, and uh, I said to him, I, ca- I walked up to him, and I called him Mr. Brower. And I said, Mr. Brower, I like tugging on his pant leg. And I said, can I play a song? I was very brave. Eh? And he yeah. said... Uh, <laughs> Sure, kid, go ahead. So I did, and the next week, Mr. Brower, <laughs> sure, kid, go ahead, <laughs> and that's what happened. I started to build an audience. I was the warm-up act for the warm-up act for the main yeah. act. The, wow, the warm-up act was transfusion, but I just come and play instead of off the street. I'd play there. I wouldn't get paid, oh. but I. Learned my chops there and started to develop a fan base, and then later on there was something called Global Village, and mm. we would go there and jam after hours, and it became quite the thing. Uh, bands mm. would come and play, form uh, relationships were formed. It was a, a magical mm. place. It was hard being the only girl in the in the boys' sandbox, you know, at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, there mm.
1: was one guy who was, had a band called Drive. His name was Craig Black, and I always credit him. Mm. But he was a great guitar player in the time when the Yardbirds were there, you know, and they were, yeah. they were into it. And he invited me to a jam, and he, he taught me Spoonful, taught me the blues mm. jam. And, yeah. and people just didn't do that. They taught me House of the Rising Sun or something like that. But he evolved me into the next level of my performing by giving me the courage to do a blues song you know nice yeah it was great and he acknowledged my my feminism way back then
0: that i had yeah. a right to be there my special guest author and world-renowned music historian john Anderson. He has researched and written many books and articles about the Canadian music scene. So we'll be talking about much of that as well as his latest book and get some insights into the Canadian music scene from someone who's researched it and written about it for decades. You became a high school teacher. Is that right? A high school history teacher?
3: Exactly. After I kind of hung up my rock and roll, uh, I would say hung up my snakeskin boots and my guitars, yeah. I became a high school history teacher.
0: But it's, it's interesting because when I was reading, you know, of course, researching for this, that the way that it all sort of evolved and came together. So you love to play. You obviously were ensconced in the music business and the music scene and loved all that part of it. Then you went to school and became a historian and then you became a music historian that kind of evolved from that?
3: Exactly. I started writing. I mean, I always had a fascination with music history. You know, I, I, I was the kind of guy who, you know, back in the 60s would, would get an album and, and, and pour over the liner notes mm-hmm. like I was, you know, studying the Dead Sea Scrolls right. to, you know, to glean any kind of information. So when I stopped playing and, and, and started becoming a teacher, uh, I, I, I wanted to write about music history. Mm-hmm. And so, so my career kind of evolved in parallel in, you know, teaching and in researching and writing about uh, rock music history
0: not all books about the music business are the same. Of course you got the autobiography, which is, which is for all intents and purposes written by the person, but there's mm-hmm. al- almost always an assistant and you've, you've participated in those.
3: I've done a couple of those as well. Yes. Yeah.
0: So and that th- those are not always totally forthcoming, right? Like, like some of those <laughs> exactly. people can be, they won't say something that maybe is unflattering about themselves mm-hmm. or they can skirt around that. Um, and then sometimes it's presented as they wrote it, but, and, and they, the ghost writer doesn't get credit. <laughs> <Yep>.
3: <laughs> Been there too. Yeah. Okay. There you go.
0: <laughs> and then there's uh, the authorized biography where someone like yourself would write, you've done some of those where, mm-hmm. um, so the, the content is, is approved in a sense, right?
3: Yeah. Now there's, there's, I mean, I mean, and I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say then the unauthorized biographies, yes, which course, you know, I yeah. be, I've been in that angle too. But yeah. I've, I've often found that to have the cooperation of, of an artist, or if it's a band maybe the principal in the band, that sort of thing. To have their cooperation, uh, is it, it makes for a better book, because you're getting the story from the horse's mouth. But I, I have a collaborative agreement drawn up years ago by uh, my lawyer, and for every kind of collaboration that I do, and that includes, with, like for example, with Randy Backman or with Chris Hillman or Richie mm-hmm. Ferre, um, it's... They might have a they, they will have they will have final approval on um, the manuscript okay but okay. if there's if there's something that they say, "Oh, I don't want this in and I say I think it furthers the story because that's all always what I'm looking for I mean I'm not going to put you know salacious tales of of you know cheating on your wife kind of stuff, but if I feel that the particular story f- uh, anecdote furthers the <laughs> story, then I'm going to say no, I want to keep it in and I in the collaborative agreement that both of us have signed. Uh, we both agree that the final decision on those kinds of things li- uh, lie with the editor. Hmm. And the editors, you know, the person assigned from the company, the publishing company to do that. And generally, they'll go with the author on that, generally, yeah. because they're also looking at how does this, how does this move the story along? How does it make the story more interesting? All, that sort of a thing. So it's, you know, some of my books have, of course, been authorized, like my Randy Backman biography, but... Um, it's, it's with an understanding with the person I'm collaborating with that it's not all going to be, you know, hearts and flowers. It's, you know, you've right. got to, you've got to understand that there's got to be warts and all. And I've, I've, I've found in every situation that I've done this, that, uh, the collaborating artist has always been agree- agreeable to that. And, and in, for example, in the case of Randy Backman taking care of business, there was, a, I, I like to cast a wide net and bring in other voices, um you know other other quotes from other people other insights from other people as well and not just randy's and not just mine Mm. Uh, and there were some things that 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 randy was surprised to read about that he never never knew how for example he never knew for example how gary peterson his oldest friend in the guess who how gary felt about randy leaving the guess who you Mm. know he basically got the heave ho got the boot and Gary opened up to me all about it, and and it was in in you know the draft of the book that I you know, sent to Randy to read, and he said he read it and he cried, oh. because he said I never realized you know how how my decisions that I was making largely for myself and my own self interest, how that hurt other people, and yeah. and also Bruce Allen who managed BTO. I mean Bruce decided when Randy left BTO that he was going to stick with BTO and not Randy, which. You know, I mean, there are a lot of personal reasons involved in a lot of that. And and when Randy read about what Bruce had to say about it, he he phoned up Bruce. You know, hadn't talked with him in years and said, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah. I really never understood it from your perspective. So you can have those kind of situations that, that I mean, maybe they mend some fences uh, along the way. But it doesn't necessarily, it wasn't the St. Randy Backman book or the St. Right. Chris Hillman book or that sort of thing. So it's good to, good that they understand that it's 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 not all going to be. Yeah, you know, wonderful. Yeah, it's not all uni-
0: unicorns and rainbows for sure. Yes. And and <laughs> exactly. so, were you were you restricted at at any point in writing where where you really wanted to put something in and, and you weren't able to?
3: No, but I. Okay. I, I in one case, though, when I did John Kay's, uh I mean, ostensibly an autobiography, interesting yeah. that when we signed the agreement to do the book, you know, he's the Steppenwolf guy. Yeah. Um, it was to be written uh, third person hmm. with the bulk of the, bulk, the quotation, the bulk of the quotations coming from John. And you know, I spent, you know, a week with him, uh, but written as, as I'm writing the story and telling the story. And then here's John's voice and here's other guys' voices and that sort of thing. But when I was working on the, the first draft of the book, um, John's manager was close friends with a um, a music, or a, a book agent, a literary agent. There's the word okay. I'm searching for. Yep. And a literary agent said, this book would sell better if it's, in John's words, if it's all in the first person. Okay. And so I agreed to do that and changed it all. And, and that's fine because, I mean, John was very forthright with his story, and he's a great storyteller. So we did that. But he had one he had one condition. I was not... To interview former Steppenwolf member Goldie McJohn because they had had a long, he and John had a long standing dispute over the fake Steppenwolf thing that happened in the early 1980s. Okay. So I, I adhered to that. You know, in looking back, I, I wished I hadn't done that and I wish I had have tried to prevail upon John okay. that that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. But that's kind of the only time I've ever had any, any conditions placed on me. Generally, they, generally the people that I work with uh, have great trust in me. I mean, the only, the only kind of caveat that Ian Tyson gave me when I did the Ian and Sylvia book was he said, just tell the truth.
0: Yeah.
3: A- and when he read the manuscript, he had no changes to it whatsoever what attracts me to want to write about uh, uh, an artist or a band or a genre of music is the human interest side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I I want to tell a good story and whether you're a fan of Randy Bachman, whether you're a fan of the Flying Burrito Brothers, whether you're you're a fan of Arthur Lee and Love, um, I'm going to get, I'm going to tell you a good story and it's going to have a good story arc to it. And human interest and and, uh, a good story appeal to me. Like I've been, I've been approached by, um, over the years by by artists who have you know on the basis of the books they've read that i wrote have contacted me to say i'd like you to write my story and and talk with them and realized there isn't much of a story there so mm. you know I, I don't want to have a book that 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 is just you know and then in 72 we toured england you right. know that kind yeah. of thing because yeah. that that's that doesn't that, that doesn't give insight in, into into people and well, i'm yeah. trying to convey that sense of insight
0: so then I have to ask about the unauthorized biographies. I mean cuz cuz they're sort of a double-edged sword, right? Because that you can write whatever you want and some of the stuff the, I was just wondering about that where where the unauthorized biographies can can include gossip and sort of the the salacious part of it but also more honest in some ways maybe.
3: Well, I've never written one, really, because yeah, I've always okay. in some way gotten, uh, again, whether it's authorization, cooperation, or even just tacit support saying, yeah, go ahead, uh, kind of thing uh, for all of my books. And, and there isn't a person that I've interviewed for any of my books, and we're talking about 19 books and you know hundreds yeah. and hundreds of interviews. There isn't a person that I couldn't phone up today and talk to.
0: Okay, so you've never been so, sued, or you've never been no I've, no. I've been threatened. I've been threatened.
3: I tell you, day, I'll tell you this story. Um, the day before my Backman book came out, and it was credited to John Anderson and Randy Backman because I wrote it in the third person, yeah. but again, Randy was the the principal source of info. Um, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. <laughs> it was the day we were gonna we were gonna have the big launch at McNally Robinson, the big bookstore in Winnipeg. You know that day coming up and about three in the morning I get a phone call from Burton Cummings and he's oh. obviously a few sheets uh, to the wind or whatever yeah. the phrase
1: yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> is and he's going if you say anything about me that's not true I'll sue you <laughs> so I, oh, that's great. I at, at, at eight o'clock that morning I phoned my lawyer and I said, "I want you to put that my house, put our house, in my wife's name, and I want you to do it now." <laughs> wow! So we're, we're doing the and lunch, and, and I spoke at the lunch. It, it, the place, the, the place was packed. We had the biggest crowd since Margaret Atwood had launched a mm. book there. Wow! And and I spoke, and then Randy spoke, and then Randy performed a few songs, and then we signed books. We signed about two hundred fifty books because people lined up. Yeah. And I was sitting at a table beside Randy, we're signing books, and I feel this little nudge in my back, and I turn around, and there's my lawyer crouched down behind, handing me a piece of paper. And he's oh. Sign this. Sign this. Oh, <laughs> Signed it. And I was, my wife. It's still there, oh, just hilarious. in case. So I have yeah. to be nice to my wife.
0: Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest songwriter, producer, drummer, and multi instrumentalist Jim Valance. He's written and recorded some of the best classic Canadian music of all time. So thanks for joining me today, Jim. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Good to be here. I've had a front row seat for, for many years to
4: you know, people like you know, Brian Adams, Stephen Tyler, Ozzy Osborne. I've seen what it, it's like to be famous and all the baggage that goes with that. And uh, that certainly was never my, my wish. I mean, it's just great to be the anonymous guy in the background.
0: And your name certainly is, is well known, but uh, that's right. You didn't, uh, you didn't embrace the, the spotlight and sort of stand front and center in the stage, but you were certainly an integral part of everything that was going on.
4: Yes, yeah, it's, nice, it's actually a nice place to be, you know, behind the scenes and, you know, very much part of the process. But except for industry peers, no one really knows who you are.
0: When you are able to make a living, and, and in your case, a very very good living, was, it, was there a defining moment, or was it planned, or was it just happenstance, or just an accident? I don't think anything's
4: planned. I mean, again, just to go way back, I mean, the first time I got paid was $2.50 for a community center in Vanderhoof, and, and you know, that was an amazing moment. Like, yeah. really? We get paid to do this? <laughs> and then, from that moment on, I mean, you can't plan anything. You can just, you know, work really hard and, you know, apply yourself every minute of every day and certainly have, have goals. And, and then Mm -hmm. you, you, once you reach them, you make new goals and you just keep kind of leapfrogging forward. So, you know, nothing was planned. It just all, not that it's accidental because it was hard work, but um, you can wish it, but you, you have to, you have to make it happen.
0: So then, I was curious about the the business side of it. Like, did you have a publishing deal or a recording contract? Like, how did that all work? Because typically, you'd have a, a band, and they'd have a core writers, or or the principals would have a record deal or some kind of publishing deal. How it must have been a bit of a, a mess there. With you know, so I have no
4: recollection people. of that at all. I mean, I, I just removed myself from the band, and okay, um, I mean, uh, Bruce Fairburn was the was the business guy. He was kind of the even though Bruce Allen eventually uh, managed Prism. Uh, Bruce Fairburn, up until that
0: point, was the business guy, and even after that. So you got your songwriting credits and just moved on? Yeah. I mean, the songwriting credits are, are in perpetuity. And you wrote Spaceship Superstar? You co-wrote that? No, I wrote that on my own. That's yours. Okay, that's great, because that that that's an awesome song. I've played it lots of times, and of course, when they did the Space Station, they played that. You I was, know, I'm but I that was... That. And then, uh, and then, of course, you met Brian Adams. Now, Brian, of course, was very well-known around Vancouver. I'm, I'm about his age. I think I'm a smidge younger than him. But, uh, you know, it would have been a natural fit for you, I guess, because he was really super eager. I mean, everybody knew how how driven and how planned. You talk about having a planned-out career. I mean, he, he was very focused on what he wanted to do. And you were older. You brought a lot to the table for him, I would think, because you already had a track record, right?
4: Yeah, I think it was a, a really good time for the two of us to, to meet. I mean, I just quit Prism, and he had just quit Sweeney Todd, and as you say, I was a bit older. I was 25, I think, and I'd already had a little bit of success in the in the Canadian music industry. Brian was 18, but I mean, just boundless energy and hugely talented and driven. So, yeah, it was a, a really good um, a really
0: good pairing. Yeah, because cause Brian was looking for. I mean, he was one of those guys. It was super. Bruce Allen said to him said one time about Brian Adams, he would have been successful at anything because he was so driven to be that. I, I think so. Yeah, he's just
4: unstoppable. I mean, he still is. He's sixty three, and he still yeah. has that same ambition and energy. And um, yeah, he's just he's one of those guys. And I've known a few of them, and I'm very envious. They're these people who can squeeze. Forty-eight hours into twenty-four, they just get so much done. Well,
0: no, that's good, and it speaks well of him. But he—he he was, you know, when you talk about your sort of being planned or happenstance or accident, to think someone like Brian really had a plan, right? I mean, he was focused on.
4: Well, what he I, I don't know if he do. had a plan. He just wasn't going to stop. I mean, he just was yeah. driven. I don't think he had an actual template. I mean, neither of us really knew what we were doing. We just tried to write the best songs we could write and, and yeah. hopefully um you know, get a record deal and have that take us somewhere, but again, none of it yeah. was planned or, or could have been planned. But again I've met, you know, so many people who had great ambition but no talent or lots of talent but no ambition. There
0: you and, go. and and Brian just had loads of both. And then so you got you wrote Hiding From Love and uh Lonely Nights and Remember? Yeah, those were some of the early songs, yeah. And then you wrote, uh, you co wrote Summer 69. I did, yes. And so that's probably Brian Adams' career defining tune, would you say? I think
4: it is. I, I think um, I mean, whenever I've seen him perform live, that seems to be the song that, um, I mean, not the only one, because there are lots yes. of songs that people enjoy from Brian's catalog, but that seems to be the one that's, uh, that really resonates, no matter where he plays it around the world.
0: Well, yeah, and it's one of those songs you could let the audience sing the whole song because they know every <laughs> word. <laughs> Truly, and I've seen them almost do
4: that, yeah.
0: You guys wrote lots of songs for, you know, that, that did well move for the movies or, or songs that, that may have done well commercially, but in terms of career-defining songs or the tune that everybody thinks about when you think about Brian Adams and Jim Balance, that, that's probably the song that comes to mind first. Yeah, I think
4: that's the best way to, to, to put it is, yes, not Brian's biggest hit, in terms of chart numbers or royalties, but it, it is the one that I think is sort of signature to his career.
0: Yeah. So then the other question I had for you is how much of what you were able to do was a function of the time that you lived in? You know, everyone's a product of their time and, and the year that you were born and the time that you came up. I mean, how much is it a function of that?
4: Well, I'm, I'm sure it all factored in. I mean, I, I feel so fortunate to have been the age I was, uh, you know, when the Beatles came along lit a fire for me creatively. And um, and through my teens having albums and artists like Hendrix just appear out of nowhere and uh, you know, Chicago, you know, all these amazing artists. And then into my twenties it was still a very robust music industry. You know, it was before Napster and people they wanted to hear a song, they actually went to the record store and paid for an album. And so there was lots of um, lots of money flying around not so much for you know the artists in earlier in your career but my point is the record companies were flush and and they were willing to invest you know money in, in new bands you know take a chance like throw money at four or five bands and if one of them succeed then the record companies made their money back so there was yeah. lots of opportunity back then i think i grew up in a time when it was still you know possible to you know, write a song get a record deal and, take that to the top of the charts. I, I, I wouldn't know where to start these days. I still think there's always going to be, not that I endorse it, but you know, if someone does tread on your, your creative material, if, if someone's melody is too close to yours, um, I, th- I think you have an obligation to um, protect your turf, and, and, and I've done it on two or three occasions.
0: Have you? Yeah. yeah. Where people just uh, what, what what's their defense to that? They just say, "Well, it it occurred to you. It occurred to me as well, independently."
4: Um, one of them, I had to really fight. I mean, in, you know, you one one of them was a slam dunk. It was a I'm not actually allowed to discuss it. That was part of the uh, settlement. Once my people got in touch with their people, they they agreed that they had copied a little too closely, and and they swore it was subconscious, and I, I believe that.
0: But we did come to terms. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's it. there's a famous story of of uh, Rod Stewart when he did Forever Young, right? I don't know and he that. got a call from Bob from Bob Dylan. Oh yes, yes, Same. yeah, yes. So they, I guess, they settled that too. They just talked about it and settled it.
4: Yeah, and, and and it's lovely when that happens. It's just no drama. You know, you don't spend a bunch of money on lawyers. You just uh, agree that yeah, sorry, I I did borrow from your song a little too much. Of course, if you have success, the record company's going to want. Um, something similar, but uh, I think you just have to be true to yourself. I mean, I'll, I'll tell, a, tell a story here, it's a little bit telling a story out of school, but I won't name any names. But um, uh, the first Glass Tiger album, we'd finished mixing it, and the we knew the first single was going to be uh, Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. And we spent a little bit of extra time mixing that with an engineer from L.A. called Ed Thacker. And, the Canadian record company were really thrilled. And so they had the um, a fellow from Capitol Records in New York fly up to hear the the album. And we played Don't Forget Me When I'm Gone. And he said, it's great, but you're going to have to do uh, another mix for the U.S. market. I said, well, what what would you do different? He said, it just needs to be a little, little edgier. We had a little bit of a talk about it, and I didn't ever really fully comprehend what what he was looking for after all the record guys record company guys left the room sitting there with the bands and we just like we spent so much time and put so much care into our mix that honestly we didn't know what we could do different so the next morning i put exactly the same mix in a box and wrote um american mix on it and (laughs) and sent it over and they loved it
0: Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest the multi-talented and multifaceted Jane Sibbery, singer, songwriter, producer, poet, and a bit of a free spirit as well. It's interesting with you and your in your pursuits because you you went to study music and then you ended up getting a you got a BSc in uh, in microbiology. Is that right? You ended up studying biology.
2: Uh, it was a general science degree, right, okay. but I decided I should get something major in something that I could maybe get a job in a lab later. I loved physics, um, but I took a course in special relativity that was beyond what I beyond what I knew. So mm. that got me so stressed out. For the first time in my life, I was so stressed out that I took a meditation course. It was TM that they were oh. teaching, and so that was a great thing. I mean, I've used it always since then. And then oh, cool. uh, chemistry is a beautiful thing. It's so abstract, and oh my gosh, um, mm. it's. Moving and then biology. My mom and I would dissect. We'd dissect in class the earthworm, the piglet, um, mm. and I'd take them home and my and the frog and I'd know them inside out by the time I left my class. So I'd take them home and show my mom on our kitchen table. Wow. She loved that. Interesting. So that was a defining moment when I simplified, organized things enough to put them into songs, and then um, and then I think I just watched how they affected people or didn't affect people. And
1: right.
2: I, I don't know how to say it, but I've, yeah, a defined yeah, moment. A, I just knew that yeah. they weren't making people mad or boring. <laughs> that's what I am Right. Yeah.
0: I guess, I guess uh, I've always looked at it like you're giving something out and you're getting something back. And if you can tap into that energy and sort of figure out what that is and how that's strengthened, then that's kind of the formula. It's, it's a little bit ill defined i suppose but it everybody gets that that's on stage that that's going to have a, any kind of a career
2: um well this i i think this is a telling example of that i played one show um, maybe 3 years ago i was doing a lot of salons then in in homes in living rooms and i remember after the show i thought mm, that felt really weird if any other shows feel that weird it's not i'm not going to bother doing music cuz it felt so that's when I realized it had to feel like a connection had been made on a soul level or deeper level. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I wouldn't bother. Um, and yeah. I think maybe other musicians will tell you that. And, and I'd honestly playing in a bar where people aren't listening. I It's um, must be very hard on the musicians because the connection is what it's all about. I find, but yeah. I was in a bar once when, it was like a band that had played over and over and over and people weren't listening and it was really disconnected, except they had a substitute bass player in and he made a mistake and threw everyone off in the band. So they had to mm-hmm. all of a sudden become present again and listen. Yeah. And that energy went out into the whole room and it, the whole room became quiet. It wasn't like they were oh. hearing a mistake, but <laughs> what they were hearing was the hearing of the musicians. And that Interesting. was- Again, again, you know, very telling in that—that's the power of music when we're present and in that mode.
0: So, how did you get your first record deal? How did that all come about? Like, you—you must have had some kind of plan, right? Like, you weren't a sort of a flower child thinking, "Okay, there's—I'm just going to let things happen." You obviously took some initiative and made things happen.
2: Yes, as has been pointed out by some friends, I seem to have a different drive. Hmm. Um, Although it's not not a linear drive it's confusing to me too sometimes <laughs> you know a pressure from within to not just stay static you know right. to to grow and then of course um I guess I got a deal after my first record just because I had a good following and that's what people looked for and sensibly um, right so it just happened like that and energy developed and then A&R people started showing up at shows and then different deals happened but so that's really great and i'm glad i had that experience and you know everything you learn from having the help of a record company and everything you learn about you know crystallizing what you will and won't do making mistakes mm. in public and all that um and then things shift where the the cart gets before the horse just because of money and that's really an interesting schoolroom too so you get into this routine of recording and then you go out live to promote it for money, and then you realize the songs are way better because you've toured with the songs, you know, instead mm. of the opposite. But the more uh, healthy way to do it is to play the songs, play the songs, feel things come back from the audience's heart, fine tune, and then record. Because um, there's a big gap between how you play live and and what you capture on tape. It's a mysterious thing. My first record was all done at David Bradstreet's, Streets and then my second okay. record was partly at Inception Sound.
0: Okay, and then the interesting thing to me on there that that you were listed as one of the producers was that important to you to be part of that process?
2: Uh, for my first or my second? I guess my Well, first. this was yeah.
0: this was on the first album. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think so. Um and and it's been con- it was precise cuz I had vision and worked yeah. hard to Um, capture it but um I I also learned as I went along that it doesn't do you any good to give people production credits you don't make more friends you make more enemies it's just Mm -hmm. be precise even if it might require a few blunt conversations anytime I've you know tried to please people or um it's shot me in the foot so yeah I I would say I've produced sometimes from a silent place um all the records. Cause if I don't think the piano's up loud enough, I can't accept it until right. it feels right in my yeah. body. You know,
0: for you to be in the center of all this and, and sort of, I don't know, you seem to march to your own drum and sort of forge your own way. And, and I think that speaks well of, especially when women can do that because you just sort of take the reins and just do what you need to do.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of people just do it cause it's the right thing to do. Um, and, yeah. um, A few times I've experienced people producing my songs without me being involved, and I wouldn't keep doing music if that was always the case. Because it's then, then I think, well, what's what's the point? I know that this a left turn here would have made it feel different in the listener's body, and that's my only skill, my only thing I trust. So I Hmm. probably, so at a certain point, I just forgot about getting producers and just you know, just going into studios and did it. I don't think it's an ego thing being a producer. It's just um getting it right and it takes a lot of work to get it right, you know. Yeah. And when I need help, I reach out for help for sure. It's not just yeah. it's not just a control freak thing, although it may be a little bit.
0: Well, if you have a vision, you know, and then and obviously, you know, some success. So in 84 you did No Borders here yeah. and you got Mimi on the Beach. That was that your first really substantial hit song? That was the one that kind of put you on the map as they say?
2: Yep. Yeah, CFNY played it a lot, and they were a great station, and then they didn't have many videos yet, that was just at the beginning, so it was a fluke thing, but, you know, this sort of slightly unusual song got a lot of video play, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, and so the album version is over seven minutes long, right, but the radio and the video cut, they they chopped it to three minutes, is that right, just over three? yeah. Yeah. And so how did you feel about that?
2: Well, it sort of spoiled the message and the timing of the message and the, you know, of the storytelling. But I don't know. I, you know, I get it and I I want, I'm always trying things and then that's where people get to see me fail in public. But so I didn't like it as an artist, as a storyteller. I liked, I don't know, it was just something to try. Yeah.
0: And it would have, otherwise it would have been a, you know it would have been a deal breaker right if it was they're not going to do a 7 minute video and 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 play your song on rotation over 7 minutes long and then you you started out as more of a a folk sort of artist and you've really done a lot you've you've been willing to adjust and shift like you went from the folk stuff to to what would you call no borders here that was considered like electronic art pop i think one person described it as
2: oh well let's remove the word art I, I, thats mm. so misleading but
0: yeah. um
2: it, it's because all of a sudden the breaks were taken off because i could play with a band which meant i didn't have to write songs that i could play so yeah. I, I could be, become a bit more complex and all this has led towards you know the music i used to hear in my head when i was three or four it's been a full long circle to get back to um getting closer to what i hear in my head the culmination being one day i finally wrote a song in slow motion which means i just i told the engineer okay this i need this rhythm i mean this pulse this tempo and then i need give me a piano and then um strings and and then i built it note by note i wouldn't go to the next mm. note till i heard it in my head and then i'd oh. fill it with whatever you know string or whatever, and trying to get closer to what I heard in my head because normal songwriting is a lot coarser for me. That was really interesting, and the culmination of that was a song called A Train Is Coming.
0: Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.